When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. understood that there are large herds of horses in a wild state in the country west of the Mississippi. The circumstances of the old world have, beyond the records of history, been such as admitted not that animal to exist in a state of nature. The condition of America is rapidly advancing to the same. The present, then, is probably the only moment in the age of the world, and the herds above mention the only subjects of which we can avail ourselves to obtain what has never yet been recorded and never can be again in all probability. I will add that your information is the sole reliance, as far as I can at present see, for obtaining this. You will render to natural history a very acceptable service, therefore, if you will enable our philosophical society to add so interesting a chapter to the history of the animal. A rising nation spread over a wide and fruitful land, traversing all the seas with the rich productions of their industry, engaged in commerce with nations who feel power and forget right, advancing rapidly to destinies beyond the reach of mortal eye, when I contemplate these transcendent objects and see the honor, the happiness, and the hopes of this beloved country committed to the issue, and the auspices of this day, I shrink from the contemplation and humble myself before the magnitude of the undertaking. As suggested by the first quote from a letter that he wrote during his vice presidency to a horse wrangler who often ventured into the Spanish province of Tejas to procure horses for ranchers in lower Louisiana, Jefferson had long been fascinated by what lay further inland to the west of the more established portions of the United States. As he moved into the presidency, the West also featured in Jefferson's inaugural address and his understanding of the future to which the nation was being drawn, as reflected in the second quote. Jefferson's continental vision of America will be a frequent subject of discussion as we move forward in our narrative. But before we get to that, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to friends of the podcast and of the podcaster, Zach Kinslow and Lauren Reed, for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Both of them deserve an extra special thanks, as they volunteered at the last minute when a schedule conflict left me without anyone to read this episode's opening quotes. I'm constantly amazed at and thankful for all of the wonderful people who have helped support my endeavors over the years, as Zach and Lauren have demonstrated yet again, and I'm humbled by their willingness without question to jump in and assist to make this episode happen. Thank you. So, confession time, dear listener. One of the quotes that I included towards the end of the last episode, the one from Representative Roger Griswold, was a last-minute addition, but once I found it, I immediately started rethinking my plans for this episode. As it did for Jefferson, the West beckons us before we turn back to affairs in Washington, D.C. As Griswold said in his quote, When Mr. Adams was president, the door of the president's house opened to the east. Mr. Jefferson has closed that door and opened a new door to the West. 
Longtime listeners know that we ventured west of the Appalachians much more in the Washington series than we did in the Adams series, and that reflects a difference in focus between the two presidents. Washington the Virginian had, like many of his neighbors, invested in lands in the West, and thus was more intimately acquainted with and interested in affairs of that region. Adams the New Englander, on the other hand, better understood maritime affairs and had more of an eastward vision. Part of this was due to the circumstances of the time and the tensions with France, but one gets the sense that, even without that impetus, the land beyond the Appalachian Mountains would never have attracted much of Adams's attention. Jefferson, though, had grown up in 18th century Virginia, where there had been a push to expand beyond the original settlements in Tidewater, Virginia, for over a hundred years. By Jefferson's formative years, quote, the Piedmont had become the dominant region of Virginia, larger, more dynamic, more prosperous, and more healthy than the Tidewater. It generated a large surplus population of both blacks and whites, many of whom immigrated farther west. Jefferson's own father had contributed to the first map of Virginia from the Tidewater to the Alleghenies, a map which was revised upon surveys from further explorations to the west. His father had been a part of a land company that had been awarded 800,000 acres in the west. The executor of his father's will, who Jefferson would work with until he came of age, was invested in the same land company and had an interest in westward expansion. One of Jefferson's early instructors, the Reverend James Maury, quote, was interested in geography and fascinated by tales of the West. Thus, it is not surprising that the adult Jefferson would be interested in the affairs of that region. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. During the Adams administration, much had been done to organize and reorganize the western lands under territorial governments, with the Mississippi Territory being created in the southwest in 1798, and the Indiana Territory being split off from the western portion of the Northwest Territory in 1800 in order to make the more populous eastern portion of the latter territory more manageable. However, there was still much work to be done by the Jefferson administration to make either of these territories capable of achieving statehood as Kentucky and Tennessee had done during the Washington administration. The main issues of the Mississippi Territory were twofold. First, by the nature of its location, the territory was largely left to its own devices. Communication to and from the territorial capital and the federal capital was slow and through indirect transportation methods. In an effort to partially alleviate the issues, a new post road had been constructed between Natchez, the capital of the Mississippi Territory, and Nashville, not yet the capital of Tennessee, in 1800. But between the changes in the State Department that year, with Pickering's departure and Marshall coming on board, and the move of the federal capital to Washington, there would only be one letter to go from the State Department to the territory's governor, Winthrop Sargent, between May 12th and December 25th, 1800. Since the territory was so far flung, it was even more crucial that the governor be trustworthy, and it seems that there were questions about Governor Sargent. Though I've been unable to find details, apparently there were accusations of irregularities against Sargent in 1800. He traveled to Washington, D.C. to defend his record with the new administration in the spring of 1801, speaking both with Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison, but it wasn't enough. 
On May 25th, Jefferson issued orders for Sargent to be replaced by Representative William C.C. Claiborne, Democratic-Republican from Tennessee. Claiborne was a fellow Virginian by birth, though he spent some of his childhood in New York City. Claiborne had returned to Richmond, Virginia to study law, then moved to Tennessee to begin his practice. He quickly rose through the political ranks there, participating in the state constitutional convention in 1796 before being appointed a judge of the Superior Court that same year. In November 1797, this rising public figure assumed a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. During his tenure in the House, Claiborne had been a frequent vocal critic of Sargent, so this appointment as territorial governor would allow him an opportunity to set right what he felt had gone awry. Beyond just his official commission, Jefferson wrote to Claiborne on July 13th to stress that the appointment was to, quote, an office which I consider as of primary importance, inasmuch as that country is the principal point of contact between Spain and us, and also as it is the embryo of a very great state. Thus, the position to which Claiborne was being appointed was not just one in which he would be responsible for domestic matters, but also would entail the handling of foreign relations for the national interest. As Jefferson explained, quote, With respect to Spain, our dispositions are sincerely amiable and even affectionate. We consider her possession of the adjacent country as most favorable to our interests and should see with extreme pain any other nation substitute it for them. In all communications, therefore, with their officers, conciliation and mutual accommodation are to be duly attended to. Everything irritating to be avoided, everything friendly to be done for them. The most fruitful source of misunderstanding will be the contact of their and our people at New Orleans. As it had been for quite some time, continued access to the Port of New Orleans was the prize on which Jefferson had his eye as he knew how critical it was for the West, and he had already heard disconcerting rumors about Louisiana. According to historian George Dangerfield, by June 1801, Jefferson and Madison had already heard a rumor of a secret treaty between France and Spain that had transferred control over that territory back to France. Thus, the president noted in his letter to Claiborne that, quote, should France get possession of that country, i.e. Louisiana, it will be more to be lamented than remedied by us and will furnish ground for profound consideration on our part how best to conduct ourselves in that case. By the time Claiborne was in place in Natchez in late November, more of the details of this deal were becoming known to administration officials. But we'll get to that all in due time. The other western frontier territory with which Jefferson had to concern himself was the Indiana Territory. Like Claiborne in the Mississippi Territory, the governor of Indiana was also originally from Virginia and had moved west when establishing himself. He's come up in a couple of episodes previously, so you may recognize the name William Henry Harrison. As I've said before, he's someone to keep an eye on. Harrison had been appointed to the post by Adams in May 1800, but had only arrived in the territorial capital in January 1801. Thus, he met Jefferson's criteria of having not been appointed after Adams knew he had been defeated for re-election, and had had little time on the job with which to get into any quote-unquote official misconduct, even if he had so wished. It also helped that Harrison was not really a strong partisan either way. During his tenure as territorial delegate to Congress, Harrison had worked with politicians from both factions and had gotten some reassurances from Democratic Republicans prior to accepting the post that he wouldn't be turned out of office should Jefferson win the presidency. 
Since Harrison was rather strapped for cash and was working to support a growing family, he didn't want to go out on a limb and incur the expense of moving to the distant settlement of Vincennes, the capital of the new territory, only to have to pack up and head back east again soon after getting there. For Harrison, the new position would prove to be a much-needed financial boon, for, as noted by Harrison biographer Robert Owens, quote, Governor of Indiana was easily the highest office Harrison could expect to hold at his age, and it offered a decent annual salary, $2,000, including $800 for being Indian Affairs Commissioner, and considerable power and influence. However, it would also entail a good amount of work. Harrison was responsible for cobbling together a new territorial government that could reasonably manage a far-flung territory. Luckily, Harrison had previous experience as Territorial Secretary of the Northwest Territory and worked with the four other officials who, with the governor, constituted the territorial government to build a legal framework for the territory by drawing from the laws of Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. They were not empowered to craft legislation of their own, but they could utilize existing laws of other states to make a piecemeal legal code. In his other capacity, as Indian Affairs Commissioner, Harrison would write to Secretary of War Dearborn in July 1801 of his concern over the conditions in which Native Americans around Vincennes were living. He cited, quote, poverty, poor health, deadly knife fights, and alcohol abuse as being key issues, but deferred in the letter to, quote, the consideration of the president as to, quote, whether something ought not to be done to prevent the reproach which will attach to the American character by the extirpation of so many human beings. Though deferential in writing, in practice, Harrison grabbed the reins and set a course without waiting to hear the president's will. Governor Harrison issued a ban on the sale of liquor to Native Americans, then, a month later, issued an order which, quote, forbade traders from following Indians to their hunting camps. He knew that if traders followed Native Americans out of town, they would ignore his ban and sell them liquor. By restricting commerce to town, he could more closely monitor trading activities. Harrison, in his first year on the job, would also work to hunt down settlers who had killed Native Americans. The importance of maintaining order on the frontier was not lost on Harrison, who had fought under General Anthony Wayne in the conflict during President Washington's tenure that has been dubbed the Northwest Indian War. Harrison would prove to be a useful agent for Jefferson in the West, as we shall see in future episodes. Jefferson would also find a useful ally in another appointee that he inherited, though it seems that he would have reason to at times hold him at arm's length. That's right, it's time to talk about General James Wilkinson again. Despite implications having reached the federal government that he was a spy for the Spanish government, as discussed in episodes 2.15 and 2.24, Wilkinson was still, somehow, the commanding general of the U.S. Army. However, Jefferson's election posed a problem for the general, as it did for the entire army. Wilkinson's subordinate, Major Thomas Cushing, wrote to the general after the election was decided in February 1801 that, quote, It is understood on all sides that an entire new administration is to be formed and that many other alterations are to be had. Thus, Wilkinson quickly made his way down to Washington to be on hand to get a feel for the new political landscape and try to influence the situation to his advantage. The new Secretary of War, Henry Dearborn, planned to cut the Army from 5,438 down to 3,300 in three regiments two infantry and one artillery regiments. This would also require at least a one-third cut in the 269 officers in service at the time. 
Jefferson's personal secretary, Captain Meriwether Lewis, served Jefferson in this capacity by compiling a list of all the officers by July 1801 and providing the president with an assessment of each officer's, quote, professional abilities and political affiliation. Though it's difficult for us to imagine today, 2019 as of this recording, with our concept of a professional military, in the late 18th, early 19th century, the political and military worlds were very intertwined. As we saw in the Adams series, military commissions were put forward and approved or denied with political implications in mind. Thus, in considering how to move forward with his reduction of the military, it was prudent for Jefferson to know who in the ranks were supporters, in staunch opposition, or apathetic in political concerns. In the civil ranks, Jefferson may have been more willing to leave Federalists in office, but in the military ranks, the administration would work over the course of a year to weed out many Federalist officers. Some were dismissed, but the administration also found ways of convincing them to quit, with Wilkinson serving as a tool to make that happen. Wilkinson displayed his willingness to serve the new administration as early as April 30, 1801, when he issued a general order which, quote, required every man under his command to cut off the queue or pigtail of long hair worn by all 18th century soldiers. Though this hairstyle was growing out of favor in the general public, it was still popular in the military ranks as a symbol connecting them to the past. Indeed, Washington had worn his hair in this manner until his death. Thus, there was a large outcry in the ranks over the order. One notable critic was Andrew Jackson, who said that Wilkinson's order was, quote, despotic. Rather than comply, a number of officers resigned. Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter speculated that, quote, had the general, i.e. Wilkinson, thrown his weight against the Republican reforms of the army, the Federalist backlash inside its ranks and among former officers would have had a leader, and as Adams had recognized earlier, a disaffected army could create a constitutional crisis with unpredictable consequences. It must be remembered that this was a time where Americans in general were fearful of a standing army, and with good reason. A certain general named Napoleon had just a couple of years prior overthrown the government of France and installed himself in power. In a world without George Washington to serve as a moderating influence over discontent officers and soldiers, as he had in dispelling the Newburgh conspiracy in 1783, it's understandable why Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans wanted to neutralize any potential threat from the military quarter. And Wilkinson, seeking his continuance in office and in the place and prestige in society that his office brought, realized that it would be easier to fall into rank behind Jefferson than to lead a rebellion against him. Thus, despite Jefferson receiving an account of Wilkinson's duplicity from Andrew Ellicott, the same person who had sent a similar warning to the Adams administration in June 1801, Wilkinson was retained in his post. Ellicott's report would not go completely ignored, however. In 1802, when Wilkinson was being considered for a new post of Surveyor General, Secretary of War Dearborn warned against it as, quote, such a situation would enable him, Wilkinson, to associate with Spanish agents without suspicion. Don't worry, there's much more Wilkinson drama to unfold. But for now, let's turn our attention back to Congress and their consideration of what to do with the Army, as well as other matters, as they began their session in December 1801. Jefferson had already been empowered by the Naval Reorganization Act of 1801, passed on March 3rd by the 6th Congress, to reduce the number of naval officers, and thus worked with his administration in October to decide who to cut. 
However, in order to reorganize the army, he would need the approval of the 7th Congress and ask for such authority in his annual message. He also asked for Congress to reform the laws relating to the militia, which would add strength to the concept of quote-unquote citizen soldiers being the core of the American defense in juxtaposition to the professional standing armies of Europe. Despite his concerns over the army, Jefferson was not completely opposed to a military establishment and actually had acted quickly in his first year to further an idea that had originally been proposed by Henry Knox during the Revolutionary War and later brought back to the forefront in his tenure as Secretary of War. Though Knox had been unable to see it to fruition, the same idea had been floated around by President Adams and his Secretary of War, James McHenry. Despite the best efforts of Knox, Adams, and McHenry, the proposed U.S. Military Academy proved challenging to get off the ground. Jefferson, while serving in Washington's cabinet, had argued against Knox's proposal, asserting that, quote, none of the specified powers given by the Constitution would authorize such a project. And though Adams had sent a proposal to Congress in 1800, they had not acted beyond authorizing, quote, the instruction of the cadets and young officers in the Corps of Artillerists and Engineers. Despite his previous objections, Jefferson abided by the Congressional Authorization and ordered Secretary of War Dearborn in the first month of the administration to direct Lieutenant Colonel Louis de Toussaint, who had previously served under General Lafayette in the Revolutionary War, to proceed to West Point to take command of the garrison at that post and to, quote, give all the assistance in your power in the instruction of such officers and cadets as may be at West Point. When Toussaint arrived in September, he immediately went to work with the one instructor who had been hired under the previous authorization, an Englishman named George Barron, and 12 cadets. As described by Stephen Ambrose in his History of West Point, the first cadets, quote, ranged in age from 10 to 34. Some were married with several children, some were college graduates, one was an ex-British officer, another had practiced law before the Supreme Court of New York. Toussaint would soon be joined by a permanent superintendent of the academy, Jonathan Williams. Williams, a relative of Benjamin Franklin, had gotten his start in life working with Franklin in Europe, with the two even conducting experiments together before Franklin's death in 1790. Williams had returned to the U.S. in 1785 and had gone into the merchant business, but had also maintained an active membership in the American Philosophical Society, rising to the rank of secretary and vice president of the organization. Jefferson, due to his close relationship with Franklin during his diplomatic career, and having become president of the American Philosophical Society in 1797, could not have failed to notice Williams, and thus recruited him to the position at West Point. As noted by Ambrose, quote, Although Williams had no military experience, engineering and artillery were really scientific subjects, and Williams was well-versed in scientific knowledge. Meanwhile, Jefferson pushed for more clarity from Congress on the status of the academy at West Point, and on March 16, 1802, they authorized the president, quote, to organize a corps of engineers which shall be stationed at West Point and shall constitute a military academy. Though there was still some vagueness to the language, and it did not represent the full vision of anyone, from Knox to Jefferson, who had been involved in the push for a military academy, it was finally a firm foundation on which a military academy could be built. In what may seem like working at cross-purposes, in the same legislation, Congress also reduced the authorized strength of the U.S. Army from 5,438 to 3,312 officers and men. Malone notes that, at the time Jefferson took office, the Army was nearly 1,000 soldiers below full strength, 
but the further cut threatened to put even more Army professionals out of commission. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to consider what at first glance seems to be a contradiction in Jefferson's thinking. At the same time as he was pushing for a reduction in military strength, he was also pushing for a military academy. Considering what we know of Jefferson, and grains of salt at the ready, as this is just my two cents, it actually does make sense. Though Jefferson was against the standing army in principle, he also realized just what a crucial role it had played in combating Native American forces in the Western territories, and how this force would be needed to secure the borderlands moving forward. As an expansionist and a proponent of education, he wanted the force that was needed to receive the best training it could get. An efficient but manageable professional force could patrol the western frontiers while the citizen militia protected the established communities of the east. This was certainly a rethink from the policies of Washington and Adams, and the military was not the only part of the federal government that both the president and the new Congress had their eyes on reforming. As the 7th Congress began, Jefferson had an advantage that his immediate predecessor Adams, and even arguably Washington, did not. The new Congress took its cue from him in terms of its agenda. Now, this isn't to say that he ruled with an iron fist, and Jefferson himself was the first to argue in favor of congressional prerogative and authority. However, he knew how to wield the soft power of the presidency. Jefferson had come into office with a strong public appeal, and he made sure to keep the lines of communication between him and Congress open. As Dumas Malone notes, quote, the extent to which congressional members consulted him cannot be measured because of the lack of records of conversations. But he undoubtedly treated them with deference and valued their counsel, sometimes yielding to it rather against his own judgment. In view of his temperament and conscious effort to avoid all appearance of dictation, one would suppose that he left tactics to the field commanders as a rule. To that end, his field commanders in the new Congress took their marching orders from several points of Jefferson's first annual message, starting with eliminating taxes. Despite his Treasury Secretary's concerns, Jefferson called for the repeal of internal taxes in his annual message, and by April 6th, the president had in front of him for his signature a bill eliminating the internal taxation system. That same month, Congress also sent a revised Naturalization Act to Jefferson, which, per his recommendation, reduced the 14-year residency requirement down to a more sensible five years, as well as confirmed that children born abroad to U.S. citizens were also U.S. citizens, along with a few other clarifying points of citizenship and the process to obtain citizenship. Jefferson also received congressional support for his handling of foreign affairs as, on February 6th, Congress approved, quote, an act for the protection of the commerce and seamen of the United States against the Tripolitan cruisers, which recognized that the U.S. was in a state of war with Tripoli and gave the president the authority to use any means he saw fit to defeat the Tripolitan force, in addition to authorizing the taking of prizes in successful naval battles. I'm sure Lieutenant Sterrett of the Enterprise wished that such authorization would have been given about six months prior. Though giving their support of the naval mission, Congress would not give its authorization to another proposal of Jefferson's related to the Navy. In his plans to decommission some of the ships of the Navy to reduce the active force, the President had received warnings that, if the ships were simply moored in a standard dock, they, quote, 
were prone to rapid decay and would be entirely rotten in six or eight years, or cost three to four millions in repairs should the ships need to be called back into service. What they needed was a dry dock, which would make maintenance more efficient and lessen the likelihood of rapid deterioration. Jefferson had a scale model of the dry dock constructed, and he displayed it in the president's house. Knowing what we know about him, it is easy to see how Jefferson would be fascinated by the engineering behind the concept and plans. When he proposed the idea to Congress in his annual message, he estimated that it would cost around $1 million to construct the dry dock and would take a year to complete. However, to Jefferson and those in favor of the idea, the $1 million would ultimately be a long-term cost saver and would preserve, quote, what we already possess. For quite different reasons, the factions in Congress would not approve of the plan. For those who were against the idea of a professional Navy, they were not convinced that the upfront expenditure would actually save the government money in the long run. For those in favor of a professional Navy, they were wary of giving Jefferson a means to take the entire Navy out of commission. Thus, Jefferson's drydock proposal languished, and the decommissioned vessels sat, wasting away. Though there is much more to discuss about the 7th Congress, our time together is drawing to a close. Thus, I hope you'll join me next time for an episode I'd like to call The Enabler-in-Chief. Special thanks again to Zach and Lauren for providing the intro quotes for this episode. To check out the sources used for this episode and all of the past episodes, go to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also learn on the website of all of the many ways that you can subscribe to the podcast and the ways that you, yes you dear listener, can help to support this podcast. Thanks to all of you who have left ratings and reviews. Those are a great way to let others who are looking for a new podcast to know why they should check out this one. Thanks also to those of you who have shared information about the podcast on social media. If you're not connected with me on there already, I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidency's Podcast, all one word. Thanks again also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty to book in our episodes from here on out. And be sure to look for information on them on social media and on the website. If you'd like to send me an email with any questions or comments you may have, I can be reached at Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Finally, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen. Until next time, take care, dear friends. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.